So the future mm-hmm. looks good, but it's a heavy lift. And some people, this is their calling, and other people, you can't force them to do it. I mean, every African American is not exactly the same. They all have different experiences. So we also can't fault the ones that don't want to do it. They're they're tired. I'm tired of having a fight every single day when I go to work. I'm tired of being questioned. I'm tired of people assuming and getting a second opinion because I said something and they're just not sure because I look this way or I speak this way or because you think I'm younger that I don't know what I'm talking about, even though I wrote the book on it. So the more educated majority members are on exactly what really happens behind closed doors, the faster we can get to a point of equity. That's Dr. Miles Thomas in conversation with her colleague, a white male, Dr. Ilya Sobel from Urology of Virginia. And that part about her writing the book, not hyperbole. It has been a season. I've hugged my son. I hugged my son, but I wanted to hug your son. Oh goodness, I've cried about our future. I had complicated feelings and arguments about marching in a pandemic. And I literally tried to meditate away reality. I read some books. I got my senator on speed dial. But still, there is so much more work to do. That's why we're back. And this is Your Neighbor's Hood. The The Season season of of Solutions. Solutions. With Hannah and Jackie. Yowzas, that was a hot opening. Yeah. So this whole episode really was genuinely just about getting two doctors together to have a little conversation. Supposed to be quick and dirty. Yeah, and we weren't in the room for it. We asked them for a flash lightning round, answer four quick questions, and we got an episode. A whole episode. And the one question that they seemed to really dig into was, what is the future for racial equity and health And what are ways for it that you see from your vantage point? I think that's like the underscore from your vantage point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can talk all we want to, but we're not sitting in the driver's seat, as you say. So we needed to ask people who were in the driver's seat what viable solutions they see. And I think we got very empathetic, very critical thoughts and an open conversation between two professionals. And here it is. What is the future for racial equity and health? And what are ways forward that you see from your vantage point? So the future for racial equity is complex because being an underrepresented minority in so many fashions, especially in the field of surgery, in the field of urology, being a female, being an African-American female, um, I am typically the only one in the room, period, for any type of anything medically related that if it's industry, if it's conference, if it's business meeting, I am the only female that's a physician and I'm definitely the only African-American at that table. So I think the future looks good because there is a new comfort level for the unknown. And I can say when I was applying for residency and throughout my residency, I was that person who had to put a lot of my own personal beliefs aside in order to educate the masses. And I would say that as in, I was often asked throughout the entire process, completely inappropriate questions. I recognized they had no clue that it was even an issue or would be a sensitive topic. The entitlement that I see from a lot of physicians and a lot of surgeons personality wise is just amazing. 
And I still see it on a daily basis. And that's because those people were never told that they couldn't be or they shouldn't be. And it was expected. I would say one time um, when I was a resident, I came into a room of a post-op. So I was chief resident and came into a post-op patient to just check the wound quickly. And I was like, hi, I'm Dr. Miles Thomas. And they were on the phone and I'm here to check your wound. And they told the person on the phone, oh, hold on for a second. The person's here to take my food tray. And so I had a couple of options at that time. I could basically walk out, get pissed and walk out. I could explain to them gently that I'm not your food service, even though I'm wearing like the white coat with the doctor name written on it. Or I could be just a jerk and explain that I just finished operating on you and how can you do that, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I chose to be very kind and sugary sweet and smile to them and explain that I was one of the surgeons involved in your care. I'm not here for your food tray and I'm here to discuss your care and management. They did turn bright red and profusely apologize. And I made sure every single day that I ran to that person, I walked in with a smile and they felt that same shame over and over again until they were discharged. <laughs> so those little things are called microaggressions that many minorities face every single day, not just in medicine. And so it's those assumptions when you walk into a room that people have about you are very, very difficult. And then you have to recognize that patients have many of those same assumptions about you. And so the way that in my community we are raised is you cannot be just as good. You always have to be better because you've had to overcome a lot more and that no one will give you credit for those compensations you've had to make because they don't give you credit because one, they don't care. And two, they have no idea what you've had to live in your lived experience because they didn't have to live it. How do you overcome that is you change the pipeline. So I know there's a, quite a few programs out there right now and UCLA has one and I'm, I'm a mentor. So there's a, a program for underrepresented minorities in med school as well as residency. And we kind of help mentor these people coming through because there is no one else to turn to. If you look at the faculty on even, let's say urology, if you actually look at the pictures online, who do you see? You don't see me. And if you see one of us, like, is that person responsible for changing the rest of the world? That's a lot of weight because as we discussed before, we have stressful jobs. They are responsible for doing their job well, plus bringing up an entire generation below them. When I can't say that my majority members are responsible for the exact same thing. So the ways forward is one, education, and two, creating those networks. So what are your thoughts about the future of racial equity and health and ways forward you can see from your vantage point? Health literacy follows socioeconomic lines and socioeconomic lines have a trend towards racial lines uh, within that. And so that being said, the, the idea is how to improve health literacy so that people can more smoothly go through the system. I see that people getting lost to follow up. The plan that was enacted wasn't accomplished because of a lack of effort on their part, but it's not really lack of effort because they didn't even know that it was their job to do it. Right. They just thought, they just trusted the system that it was just going to work. Whereas the person who was persistent and called and said, hey, I was supposed to get a CAT scan. What happened? They knew what a CAT scan was, that it's something that happens at another facility, that it requires an order, just a concept. So I think there's a very straightforward solution that will be broad 
overarching improvements in healthcare in all facets, one of which is going to improve racial equity, which is a unified healthcare record. Whatever that means, I don't know how to make that happen mm-hmm. within this sort of complicated capitalist society that we have where, you know, I understand that the hospital pays their IT bill based on the version of Epic they have and the other hospital pays the other IT bill and they have different builds and as a result of that, they don't talk to each other. So if there is either an over-the-top IT move, if the, if the, if the record was unified what would happen? We have access to all the data points that are out there. We decrease the cost of double testing. So the number of times that I get a blood blood test, that another gets a blood test, that another doctor gets a blood test, just purely because we don't know that we both did that in space and time, is actually probably a considerable number of health dollars that are wasted. So we would save money for America on the thing that is the most expensive thing we do, basically. That's number one. Number two, If you have multiple physicians now knowing that this patient with maybe decreased health literacy, they need to go get a CAT scan. So I see them and then their primary sees them and the primary says, oh, the urologist said you needed the CT scan. What happened? They're like, oh, I don't don't know. I never got a call. And so they'll say, okay, well, let's route it back, right? So you have these now safety measures because we're all communicating. And I think that that would spill over to a better care for less cost and improve the access and equity. Well, would there be some accountability? So I will just use the example of recently there have been two female physician deaths who had excellent health literacy, were both at the same health system, records were all there, but because of bias actually expired. So would there be some accountability if that was an all-in-one system? Because right now there is none. And I know both of those people actually had excellent health literacy mm. since they were physicians at the institution. So what, tell me a little bit more about that. What do you mean? So if I, you look I, at the data for um, the U.S. mortality rate for women delivering, it's 40% higher for African-American women. Um, yeah. Recently in the news, you may have read about the pediatric resident who just expired at the time of delivery at her own facility. And in the news, you may be seeing information about a physician who recently received very poor care at her neighboring facility, was transferred, and then expired from COVID. Even posting information about how she was degraded, et cetera, by by attendings on the team, et cetera, even though it was known she was a physician. So what I'm asking is, even if we have all the information, you cannot take people out of the mix. So, no, you, yeah, I agree. So I the only way to change yeah. patterns is to hold people accountable for their actions. If I have two patients who I am required to give certain information to, one, I give all the information, all the access, the other one I don't, I need to be accountable for that. Yeah. No, you're right. I wanted to find a problem that has a solution that maybe doesn't require going in and changing human behavior, but that obviously it's a critical part. It seems that racism never, it never went away. It never is gonna go away. It just keeps changing shape. It's like a shapeshifter that in this society changes the way that it manifests itself changes shape. And I think um, it's certainly not, it's not the way that it was a hundred years ago and I do think we've hopefully made some progress in our society. Uh, but 
still the way it's present now is uh, far more under the surface. We have a long, long, long way to go. And I think, um, yeah, people are at the heart of it. You know, I think I wanted to find something that almost was outside of that in some way that would maybe help uh, because it seemed like that would be something that's uh, wouldn't require, I don't know, door to door, I guess, you know, like really like going to each person and being like, what's going on here? Let's, you know, why is this happening right. or changing, uh, completely rechanging the way we educate people, which is all, it's all necessary. We have to keep striving for that. But um, I think it just got rid of, I mean, your idea gets rid of a lot of the barriers that we say are in place. And so then it comes down to if you have the same information mm-hmm. on every single patient, why would you do X versus Y for the same type of patient? I mean, we all think we're special, but we most of us can be fit in certain buckets. Absolutely. And the bucket should be treated the same with the same quality of care. There's even things that, I think there's things that we can improve on as physicians. Um, it, the data is hard to argue with, but it, it seems, for example, that physicians tend to give less pain medication to black patients than they do white patients because of a perceived higher threshold for pain, which I'm not sure there's any literature to suggest any of that, unless you're Norwegian, in which case they do have a higher threshold for pain. That's been documented. Or you're from uh, the the Mediterranean or Jewish like me, who we have the lowest pain threshold. So you have to give us more medication. <laughs> so there's, there is some data about about pain receptors and how much you know it's very like loosey-goosey anyway um so yeah i mean i think we we have a lot of improvement i don't know why that happens uh i uh why is it from old myths that were present and that persisted or less empathy well maybe some of it's cultural yeah so maybe some of it's cultural maybe maybe certain generations are raised to say you accept what you get historically and you don't, you, you don't make a fuss because things could happen to you. So think about it. So in, in my history, let's say, so my grandmother, who was 90, was part of that generation where her great-grandparents were enslaved. So even though she worked in the healthcare field, you didn't complain, you didn't ask for more because she was raised that there are repercussions for sticking your neck out and for asking questions or making someone that was a majority feel that they weren't doing a good job. So that kind of communication will pass on from generation to generation where if you, one, show weakness because you're having a lot of pain, you just know that you need to toughen up and not show weakness because then you're even Mm -hmm. more vulnerable than you actually are because of your race. Um, And then in other cultures too, You have to, so cultural awareness is very difficult because the majority is never forced to learn the minority culture, but the minority culture is forced to live and learn the majority culture. So if you have certain patients in different cultures and you don't understand that they may be very, what we call extra and loud and boisterous about X, Y, or Z, if you don't understand that cultural cultural kind of nuance, you're going to either blow them off that they're not really having pain and you'll never get down Mm -hmm. to what the actual issue is of why they feel they had to exhibit that. So it's maybe they don't need pain medicine. Maybe they do, but maybe there's something else underlying that has to be addressed before they can stop that behavior. And those things, I mean, all we're talking about is time and effort 
and energy. And as we said before, we have limited of all. So it's right now, it's like, come in, fix the problem, next one with the next problem. And we don't really, we never really had classes. And I think they're doing it in med school now more of cultural awareness. But again, those classes depend on those cultures for one being present and being in the med school or available to the med school to to know them as a contact. And then that person willing to be that open kind of conversation leader and be very vulnerable when they've always had to be vulnerable. So it's like asking the minority again to make the plan and do additional work to fix the majority. So I think the I think things are I would say getting better mm-hmm. because there are a lot more conversations especially this year a lot more conversations about race, gender inequities um and I think moving forward as we look like one of the things I was very inspired by was Biden's pick for the Department of Interior like the whole fact of the people who actually mm-hmm. own the land get to help decide how we utilize it even though we've taken it from them that was that was a great inspiration to you know what let's start really having these conversations that are about how do we preserve the diversity and and how do we make sure that we don't continue to to abuse and marginalize mm, societies yeah good point something that a patient told me the other day he was a black man in his 70s and he said you know a lot of my friends don't trust white doctors you know a lot of we, I, we just won't go. Uh, what is your cross-section with that concept of patients' discomfort with their physician's mm-hmm. race and how it relates to their own? And I guess, what suggestions would you have for me to help? I'm, I'm doing my best, but I, I, can't, I can't be like, no, no, don't worry. This time it's different. Like, you know what I mean? I, uh, yes, we had the Tuskegee Airmen, but I'm not a part of that. So... I can't absolve myself. Wait a minute. So Tuskegee Airmen is a positive thing. It was the first blacks that were actually yes. like fighter pilots. Tuskegee yes. experiment. That's what I negative. meant. Sorry. That was Not, the, that yes. was the um, syphilis experiment where they had the treatment and didn't give it. Yeah. So um, I would say, I would ask why. And that's the part of our day that takes the longest because now it's, it's an open conversation and we don't have time, but it needs to happen. So if someone said... Hey, most of my friends don't trust white doctors. I, I mean, I'm in a different position. So I would say, why is that? And if they said, oh, well, because, you know, I heard about Tuskegee or my great grandparents were sharecroppers and they sharecropped for this physician and they were constantly ripped off and abused. So I know like this is historically, it doesn't mean that you personally are going to be the one to abuse them in any way. But that's them putting up the boundaries and the barriers to prevent themselves from being hurt again when generationally they heard about it over and over again. Because you can't convince someone that that's not true because that's their truth. Yeah. The people that, that loved and took care of them told them their truth. And even though things may have changed, if they have not seen that change for themselves, they can't believe it. Yeah. I, wish, I, I guess I was just asking, what do you, what do you think someone like me can do to, to try to erode that. You just have to be a good doctor who takes care of them and respects them as people. And so then what's going to happen is that patient will go back. And the next time they have a conversation with, with their friend, they're like, Oh, I don't trust white doctors or whatever they're going to say. Oh no, mine's actually really good. He's, he's really good. He takes good care of me. He does X, Y, or Z and fix my problem. And they'll say, Oh, well, that's probably just him. But guess what? The next time it happens, 
okay, so now there's more people. All right, so not everyone's bad. It's just those people I had experiences with in the past. It's very much like, it's like the reverse. We generalize definitely about African-Americans. You see a bunch of African-American males mm. walking down the street. Majority of Americans will still cross the street. But we don't do the same for other races. So it's generalizable. So you're just looking at it from the other way, saying that, hey, maybe some black people do generalize about white people in general. But it goes both ways. What, do you, what is your intersection with that, what this sort of this topic? Um, I know you mentioned earlier that sometimes... I imagine the patients that are getting a second opinion after seeing you, these are, these are mm -hmm. white patients that don't, that have some degree of erosion of the value of your recommendations right. based on their biases on race. Right. So I'll say both, both ends. So mostly anyone who's an underrepresented minority who sees me after the scribe leaves the room, they ask me to come back in and they just say, I am so grateful for you. Thank you so much for doing this. You're the first person I've ever seen in this position. I'm just so happy to see you. Because to them, it means things are changing. For those that offer second, um, want to have second opinions, et cetera, I more than wholeheartedly say, I can make the arrangements. I would love for you to get a second opinion. Because to me, mm -hmm. there's no reason for me to try to repair that relationship. Because if there's any type of lip in their care, they're going to say, I should have chose someone else. I should have. So if you have mm -hmm. questions and don't have that complete trust in me, I am perfectly fine with you seeking care elsewhere. And I will help you make the arrangements. I think whatever is the best for you should happen. But I can tell you also, I've had a couple of patients who said, I want a second opinion. They went to X, Y, or Z, had something done, had multiple conversations, I mean, complications, and then came back kind of in that role. And I let them talk first. I don't say, I told you so. I don't, I say, hmm. So tell me about your experience. What happened? And what would you like me to do for, for you now? And their conversation says, first, I'm always so sorry. I am so sorry. We discussed this plan. You discussed the risks and benefits. I chose to do something else. And now I'm asking you to help me again. So since I've had that experience, I think I'm more, I'm more willing to put my pride aside and offer those second opinions because mm -hmm. I know what's likely going to happen. And that's fine. Mm. Yeah, those are always delicate moments. I think it's important to choose the high road because at the end of the day, they're sick, not right. you or me. And they're just they're just so looking for care they're, and they're yeah. trying to figure out what's best for them and that's perfectly fine. If I'm not the best person, then I don't have a problem helping you find the person that's right for you. Yeah. Well, one day at a time. We'll fix it all. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> one day at a time, yeah. So we've unpacked the problems, we've brainstormed. Next episode, we're gonna give you some concrete steps. And hopefully those steps are things that you can take in your own backyard. We're not trying to change the huge system. We're trying to change the systems that you are in. So next episode, we'll dig a little bit deeper onto what we can do as individuals and as organizations. So stay open, stay curious. And make it a great day closer to history.